tomorrow, gentlemen. We'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Riviera, Mirage, Flamingo, Sahara, and MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesar's Palace, is it? I want to gamble. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. Good evening, sir. Hello, how are you? I am quite well. I am enjoying... Um, you're familiar with the place that I like to go snowboarding, right? The Breckenridge? Yeah, of course, in Colorado. I, yes, I recently found that Breckenridge has a beer sampler, and I am thoroughly enjoying it. Oh, that's excellent. Yes, yes. How about you, sir? Are you enjoying a drink this evening? Uh, well, I am enjoying a drink, but it is non-alcoholic. Having consumed a, a half a bottle of vodka last night, I'm staying away from it tonight. <laughs> well, you got to equalize out, sir. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So this is uh, this is this is what we've been waiting for. I don't want to go so far as to call it a dream, but this is what inspired us. Yeah, Mark and I are very pleased and excited to bring our very first vintage Vegas bonus round feature on this episode. Uh, a couple of words before we get into the show. When Mark and I sat down and discussed doing a Vegas-themed podcast, we had intended on doing something a little bit different. While we have a great time bringing you the news, coming attractions, and all the other normal segments on the Standard Weekly Show, it doesn't really complete the vision that we had for the 360 Vegas podcast. We really wanted to take a step outside of the box and bring content to the show that is interesting, entertaining, informative, and unique from other Vegas shows that you have available. On this episode, we're going to take a step back in time and take a look at Billy Wilkerson, a key figure in Las Vegas history. History hasn't been fair to Billy Wilkerson. For years, a myth has lived in romantic Hollywood lore that Bugsy Siegel is the father of modern Vegas, when in truth, it was stolen and ruined by the notorious gangster who caused the project to end up costing six times more than its original projected cost. When it finally opened, it was a disaster of such catastrophic proportions that the partners he had in the mafia killed him for it. Now it's time to set the record straight. Billy Wilkerson was the founder of The Hollywood Reporter in 1930. Now, The Hollywood Reporter was the first daily entertainment industry trade paper. It reported on movies, studios, and personalities in a very candid way. Wilkerson became one of the town's most colorful and controversial. Each issue began with an editorial by Billy, which at times exposed corrupt studio practices, insider info, and standard things that you would expect to hear watching Access Vegas or TMZ. Billy's column went on to become one of the most widely read columns in the industry. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, it was reported that President Franklin D. Roosevelt actually had a copy of the paper airmailed to him daily. Billy became infamous for his solicitation of advertising. Studios were literally blackmailed to support the paper and suffered coverage blackout if they didn't. 
In fact, Billy burned so many bridges at one point, all the studio heads banded together and refused all advertising to Wilkerson and deprived him of news from their studios. Yeah, it went so far as where Wilkerson's reporters were actually banned from the studio lots. So Billy told them to climb over the studio walls and sift through the executive's trash. (laughs) This produced a ton of incriminating information that Wilkerson gladly reported on. Now, Billy diversified by opening high-end nightclubs and restaurants. It was said that he brought Paris to Hollywood. He opened them on Hollywood social circles, Sunset Strip. He owned Vendum, the Cafe Trocadero, Sunset House, Ciro's, LaRue, and Ligon. And they contributed much to the golden era's dazzling glamour. Now, Wilkerson became the nation's most successful restaurant and nightclub owner. Billy was an insufferable workaholic, and it contributed to his five divorces. He was also a compulsive gambler. In fact, it was said that everything he did in life was compulsive. Yeah, he definitely had a compulsive personality. Uh, He was the kind of guy that would sit down and drink 20 Cokes a day and smoke three packs of cigarettes. He would work in the morning and go to the track in the afternoon. He always was known to keep a pair of dice in his coat and a deck of cards close by. He also used to go so far as to bet with his patrons in his restaurants, and if they won, they wouldn't have to pay for their bill. Now, in the 20s, gambling and prostitution were easily available in California until they were made illegal in the late 1930s. This forced people like Wilkerson to get their gambling fix elsewhere. Billy's favorite place quickly became Las Vegas. He would charter a plane in the morning, spend a few hours at the tables winning or losing around 10 to 20K before returning home to Hollywood. Like most gamblers, Wilkerson was also very superstitious. He had a rabbit's foot on his keychain that had gone bald from all the rubbing that he used to do. <laughs> and then he used to say, he actually used to say Hail, Hail Marys as he rolled the dice. Wilkerson eventually came to realize that he had a problem, and he, and he shared his concern with his friend Joe Schneck. He was the head of the 20th Century Fox Studios and a fellow card player. Wilkerson shared the vast amounts of money that he had lost to gambling. And by fall of 1944, his gambling debt was over $1 million, and it threatened to bankrupt his business. Now, Joe offered a suggestion. Be on the other side of the table. Build a casino. I mean, own the house. So as much as Billy loved the casinos in Las Vegas, he hated the desert. The whole thing really lacked the kind of glamour and sophistication that he was used to in Hollywood and California. When Billy realized the potential of a place like the ones he had in Hollywood as a casino resort in Las Vegas, it could really attract the Hollywood types. So Billy knew that he was going to need something on a grand scale and and much more than just a casino if he was going to attract those kind of people that frequented his clubs and restaurants in Hollywood. So he envisioned a place unlike any in Las Vegas had seen at that time. He wanted to not only cater to gamblers, but he wanted an oasis to people who just wanted to relax. A luxurious home away from home with high-quality shows, fine dining, and outdoor activities. In 1945, Wilkerson spotted a 33-acre lot on Highway 91. He had his attorney, Greg Baltzer, negotiate and purchase the property under his name instead because Wilkerson was known as a high roller and was concerned that if it was known that he was purchasing the property, it would cause the price to go up. He ended up paying $84,000 for the property. Now, once he had the land, Wilkerson summoned the architect and designer that had worked on several of his Hollywood projects. 
Wilkerson wanted a mammoth complex with a casino, luxury hotel, showroom, nightclubs, restaurants, a cafe, and even a health club. Outside would have private bungalows, a swimming pool, tennis, badminton, handball courts, a nine-hole golf course, a shooting range, and stables housing 45 horses. Billy had very specific ideas in mind for the casino, and he was really candid about discussing his compulsive gambling habit with the designers in an effort to build the perfect casino. He wanted to make people as comfortable as possible to lose their money in his casino. He was building the perfect place for him to gamble in. The concepts he put into place are now considered Casino Designing 101. Yeah, he, he wanted the casino to be in the center of the hotel, so you couldn't really move about the property without passing through the casino to get from one area to the other. He also wanted no windows because daylight interfered with gamblers' concentration, and the interior lights would always be dimmed in an effort to disguise the, the passage of time. There was also no wall clocks. A gambler doesn't really need to be reminded of other obligations. They, you know, He wanted everybody to forget about the outside world. Additionally, all the staff in the casino and the hotel would be in formal wear. And Wilkerson also had custom gaming tables with curved edges and leather cushion pads that would be very comfortable to play around. Standing diminished the pleasure of the game, so he mandated that chairs and stools be at every single table. And his hotel would also be the first in the United States to utilize air conditioning, finally making the desert habitable. Construction was started in 1945, about one year after the property was purchased. Yeah, Wilkerson was actually having a lot of trouble coming up with a name for the property, something he usually did long before the projects are completed and usually inspired from his many different travels. He was a big fan of exotic birds. Uh, after going over dozens of bird names, he settled on the pink bird he had seen during a trip down to Florida and had a graphic designer work on the logo for the Flamingo Club. Now, Billy was smart enough to know that he didn't know how to run a casino, so he tapped the talents of Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway, who were, at the time, running the El Cortez for the Mafia, often referred to as the Syndicate. It was common to have casino operations subcontracted out in those days for a cut of the profits as a silent partnership. Now, Billy was familiar with Gus and Mo because he owed them 100000 in gambling debt. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> as the plan for the property grew, so did the budget. Nearly a third of the construction was complete when Billy ran into financial trouble. Materials were hard to find and expensive to purchase during post-war period. Cost inflated to $1.2 million because of the materials inflation, and Wilkerson didn't have it. He had already invested 300000 into the project. He hated borrowing, but approached Bank of America, who at first declined him because they already extended him a line of credit for 200000 the year before. Using the Hollywood Reporter as collateral, he was able to get Bank of America to agree to give him a loan for 600000 He got another 400000 from longtime friend Howard Hughes, but he was still short 200000 yeah, and as, as Billy had done so many times before, he took $200,000 and tried to win the rest of the money at the tables and ended up losing all of it. So, Wilkerson had to resort to offering discounts on advertising in The Hollywood Reporter and in exchange for surplus lumber and metal from the studios. He even threatened some studio execs that their movies would not be reviewed if they didn't contribute to the cause. However, the materials that he was able to get from them were little value to the project. So in January 1946, the project came to a complete halt. 
Billy paid off everyone in cash and left the unfinished Flamingo. Yeah, Mo Sedway actually brought Wilkerson's project to the attention of Meyer Lansky and proposed that it could be a unique opportunity for the Mafia to expand their legitimate business ventures. Yeah, in 1946, many believe that Meyer Lansky was one of, if not the head of the syndicate, since Lucky Luciano was deported to Italy and barred from ever returning to the U.S. It took some convincing, but eventually Lansky saw the potential in a grand project like this and decided to invest. The group sent a representative to make Wilkerson an offer. In February of 1948, the project had been dormant for over a month. A man walked up to Wilkerson and said he was from a New York firm and was interested in investing in the property. In exchange for funding, Billy would retain a one-third share in the project. He'll be able to call all the creative shots, be sole owner and manager of the property when it opened, and the investors would be silent partners. When asked how much he would need to complete the project, Wilkerson quoted $1 million, and while he was very interested in the proposal, demanded to retain complete ownership of the land, to which it was agreed that he could. So, on February 26, 1946, Wilkerson received $1 million to complete the Flamingo and a one-year deadline for completion. One month after construction resumed, Moe and Gus brought Benjamin Bugsy Siegel to the construction site and informed Billy that Bugsy was his new partner. Yeah, Bugsy was commissioned by Meyer Lansky to keep an eye on their investment. This is kind of where history takes a little bit of a turn as far as what we know and what is popular belief. Absolutely, yeah. At first, Bugsy had no interest in any assignment that took him to Vegas on a permanent basis. He had just recently moved out there. We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to explicit, commercial-free podcasts, including The Weekly Show, 360 Vegas Reviews, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360VegasPodcast.com.